Hello, and welcome to Episode 9 of Design EDU Today, the podcast series discussing topics concerning the state of interactive design education at institutions of higher learning. I am your host, Gary Rosance, Assistant Professor of Graphic Design at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. Today's guest is Jay Finelli. Jay, a design school dropout, is one-third of Cotton Bureau, the mutant child of the previous t-shirt store web design community united pixel workers and the grandchild of the dearly departed web design studio full stop interactive at cotton bureau jay is in charge of colors shapes and letters even though i got to think there's more to it than that Um, jay was named after a brand of pistol grips and lost only two spelling bees in his life Uh, he made it from 1991 to 2008 without vomiting for any reason and strongly believes that the Nike Air Max 95 is the greatest sneaker ever designed. He also is hopelessly addicted to Coca-Cola. Welcome, Jay. Uh, thanks <laughs> Thanks for having me. That was yep. quite an introduction. You're welcome. But one question. How many spelling bees have you actually entered? Um, by my count, I <laughs> yes. want to say it's upwards of 40, maybe maybe 50, something, okay. something like that. Go so that I, between like third grade and, and sixth grade, if, if I remember correctly. So that's a good ratio then. Yeah, yeah, I was pretty good in my day. All right, I'm terrible at it. Um, lack of practice. All right, so <laughs> before we get started, I wanted to let the listeners know that, that Jay has been interviewed on lots of different podcasts. He's spoken at Creative Mornings, and stories have been written about him in Net Magazine, most recently this summer's freelance issue, amongst other publications. He's even been on a KDA KDKA News in Pittsburgh. So I'm going to post links to those interviews in the show notes because you should listen to them all. But to me, they're all about the business of Cotton Bureau, how it grew within United Pixel Workers, the business decisions made, but not about the actual design. So I want to talk to you about design, how you designed things when you ran full stop, how you designed the amazing United Pixel Workers site and how you design the systems behind the t-shirts at Cotton Bureau, and maybe get into that super big question that I kind of have is design good training to be an entrepreneur. So, All right. All right. So you worked at a few interactive design shops um, before you and Nathan started up the interactive design firm Full Stop. Mm-hmm. You said that you don't exactly have formal graphic design training. So how did you convince those first couple of agencies you had what it takes to be an interactive designer? Um, I would say uh, pretty honestly that kind of a vacuum of leadership (laughs) allowed me to kind of do a little bit of what I wanted to do without anybody trying to put me in in a role. Um, The beginning of my career uh, when I worked at, uh, at a couple different agencies, I was really just a client manager. Um, I wasn't a designer at all. I wasn't in a creative role at all. I was somebody who was managing clients. I was having phone calls. I was making and sending reports. I was, you know, putting on a tie and getting on planes and driving around to to different client meetings. Um, But I wasn't a designer. I wasn't a creative director. I wasn't an art director, any of that stuff. Um, That was what I did in my free time. Um, But it was never what I did professionally. Um, I briefly went to design school uh, for a master's degree in interior architecture and design. Dropped out after after one year. It was a three-year program. Um, And then moved back to Pittsburgh where I got another job, really my last job at an agency. 
and it was it was there that I was able to kind of work myself into a, a working, reasonable, successful uh, web designer. Um, it was a really small department in a company that didn't quite understand interactive design, and the handful of people that were in the department, you know, it was five or six or seven people, you know, depending on the time. Um, we were a pretty tight team, and we really knew what we were doing with web design, but the company itself really was was pretty lost. Um, so that's where I was able to just kind of take the role that I wanted. Um, and I was working with, at the time, I mean, this was back in 2007 and, and, and early, 2008 and then early 2009, um, you know, Flash was still a thing. So there were a couple of Flash developers there. Um, that's where I met Nathan Peretic, my, you know, business partner that I've, we've started every single company uh, together. Um, Nathan was right out of school, um, and he, like me, was a, basically a political science major um, who identified web design as a, as a growth industry and decided to learn how to code. Um, so he was this was his first job out of college, um, so he was still, still a pretty young kid. Um, my best friend was working there as a web strategist at the time, um, and there was a real need for somebody to step into a design role there um, because I'd been doing it for so long on my own, really, since, since I was a little kid. Um, I, I gave it a shot, and I think you know the year that I spent in design school gave me the confidence to know that I could that I could do it. And to be very honest, there wasn't anybody there to tell me to stop. So, well, that actually, I, I have two questions that I want I want to follow up. But you know, one that this is an observation. Um, so you said you've been designing your entire life, and maybe that I kind of like the people who draw, people who are illustrators. Mm -hmm. They've been doing it all their life. They already know how to draw when they go to school. School just kind of at that point just makes them how to, you know, makes them do it critically <laughs> from, right. a, you know, put it into perspective. But the talent, the draw was already there. Right. I mean, so I kind of look at maybe that's what happened for you is that, the, you know, the, since you've been designing your whole life, that the ability to design was already there. It just that one year in school just gave you a way to put it into perspective, maybe. Oh, this yeah. is an observation. Yeah, I think um, I think for me, it gave me some some formal training on technique. Yeah, um, especially foundational kind of things, um, proportion and color and things like that, scale. Um, for me, it, you know, it's I could draw when I was a kid. I wasn't the best at it. Um, you know, especially as I got into high school, and there were people who were really spectacular yeah. at, at illustration and drawing. Um, but I was always into, you know, I guess what I grew to know as design, you know, things like logos and, and I mean, you know, I jokingly mentioned my love for the Nike Air Max 95. Um, <laughs> I was, I mean, I remember drawing like sneakers in my notebooks when I was a little kid, you know, eight, nine, 10 years old. Um, I remember always, you know, I always loved uniform design, um, those sorts of things. I think in, a, in another life, I'm probably working for Nike designing like college football uniforms or something, but, um, yeah, I guess you know I was I was always I was always into it, um, and I always had some talent for it. And I think spending a little bit of time in school, you know, taught me how to formalize it a little bit. And and like I said, you know, when I came back to web design, um, like I said, that that gave me the confidence to to try to pursue it as a as a career. I remember my my mom saying when I was in in high school. Because I was good at a lot of different things. I was good at math. I was good at science. I was I was pretty good at writing and, and social sciences, those sorts of things. And I was good at art. Um, and my mom kind of pushed me to go to art school or architecture or something like that. And I remember telling her at the time, you know, I, that's I want to keep that as a hobby. 
and I spent, you know, as I'm, as I'm, I've said a number of times, I spent the next 10 or 15 years trying to get back to it as a job. Um, you know, and if I could press the reset button, there are probably a, a couple other careers that I would pursue, um, all in design, um, either industrial design, you know, as I mentioned, you know, some sort of like fashion design or uniform design, um, maybe even car design. I don't know. But, uh, but yeah, that's, uh, that's where that came from. Yeah. My, my reset button is toy design. Yeah. <laughs> Just one would love to do that or architecture. Great. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, but I just back up one other. So how did you get your first portfolio to show in that first job? Um, it's <laughs> to, to get the job or yeah. coming out of the well to get, I mean, to get the job, they hired me as a, they hired me as a project manager. Oh, and, okay. And I, I made it a condition of my taking the job. Like, you, you know, you guys got to let me design a little bit. And, you know, they didn't really know what that meant because they were, this is a, this was mostly a video production shop. Gotcha. Um, it was about 25 people in video production and about five or six people in web design. And, uh, there was nobody, there was no one in the interactive, uh, department who was dedicated to design. You know, there was one person who was like a hybrid flash developer and designer, um, but nobody who was just designing websites. And, you know, I'd been doing it for, at that point, about 10 years, um, on my own. And thought I could thought I could make it work. So you know that actually kind of so that does lead into that next question I wanted to ask. So in an article um, you wrote on the pastry box uh, project, you gave a, a recent graduate some advice in the article. And one piece that sticks out to me is use in I quote: "Be proactive and anticipate needs. Look for opportunities to fill gaps." Don't sit around waiting for someone to tell you what to do. Step up. So that pretty much defines your career, it sounds like. So, But you're not the only person who said this. Joe Rinaldi, president of Happy Cog, recently said he looks for proactive in all his new hires. Mm -hmm. So is this lack of – is a lack of being proactive a common problem you see nowadays since so many people are saying their number one advice is be proactive? I think, um, and, you know, and this is something I've said in, in a couple other places, but not necessarily in this context. Um, I think stu recent graduates yeah. um, are used to structure and they're used to being told what to do. They're used to assignments. Um, mm -hmm. They're used to a schedule. And when you get into the working world, especially at a small company or a smaller company, you know, something that's, let's say, 30 people or smaller, um, you know, we were a good example of that. Happy Cog is another good example of that. It's tough to come out and just a lot of companies that are that size don't have a need for somebody who just does one thing um, and just sits at a desk waiting to be to be told what to do. There are a ton of needs at small companies. Um, and if you just kind of sit at your desk and, you know, you do your assignments and you pump it out. I mean, that's, you know, you have to do that. Obviously, you have to get things done on time and you have to do everything that's asked of you. Um, but it also helps that if you have other skills or you see one of your colleagues that's kind of struggling, um, you know, either, you know, they, they have a deadline that they can't meet or, you know, they have a particularly difficult client, something like that. Um, you know, stepping in, I think, you know, I think helps show some some initiative and gets you and gets you noticed. And like I said, I, I think in the absence of a structured environment, a lot of recent graduates kind of struggle um, because they're not used to taking the initiative. Because school doesn't necessarily teach you to take the initiative; it teaches you to do your assignments. 
You know, that's a, I'm glad you bring that up because that's something that I, I wrestle with um, internally when I teach because I assign make something. Mm-hmm. That's not how it works because that's our, you're, we're already giving them the solution to the problem. That's not real problem solving either. It's like the real problem would be to just go, all right, ask the client what their problem is mm-hmm. and then tell them, oh, yes, the website is the way to solve that. No, the website is not the way to solve that at all. You should just – you need new content. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the website's fine. Right. Um, and I think we don't do a good enough – I don't think – it's not that we don't do a good enough job. I think I don't think we've ever stopped and thought about that line of what that kind of creates. And you're right. That's a good observation that that creates just somebody that's not proactive. It's somebody who's reactive mm-hmm. right? and is waiting to react to something. And so we need to, I think we can do little things in the classroom to shift that thinking. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, the, the definition of design is constantly growing and constantly yeah. expanding. And, you know, it, it's one of those things where it's like, you know, if the only tool you have is a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. Um, <laughs> you know, a lot of designers think that they can solve every problem with with what is traditionally thought of as design, you know, visual design. Yep. Um, you know, they think that a new logo will solve the problem when, as you mentioned, you know, new content may be what they need. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, you know, that's been an interesting lesson to learn, especially as we've transitioned into product work is you know, we, we have this attitude as designers where it's like, oh, well, every six months or every 18 months, we need to redesign the entire website. It's like, well, do we? You know, is that the right thing for the business? And and running a running a product business has given us like a really raw introduction to that, you know, to what that kind of thinking uh, results in. Can you um, talk a little bit more about or describe what you mean by pro- uh, product design? Right. So product business. All right. So, uh, we make, uh, we make a thing (laughs) called called cotton bureau. Uh, and cotton bureau is a, is an online business that, you know, makes and sells t-shirts, um, at its, at its most base. Um, so, you know, we define a product business as, you know, a group of people working on the same thing, um, whether that's a online application, Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's either, either like a web app or an iOS app or, a, or an Android app, um, you know, a virtual product, something like that, um, or something that makes, you know, makes physical products. Um, so we are, the work that we do is exclusively to promote and grow one thing. Um, and that one thing is Cotton Bureau. And what we used to be and what a lot of you know, other places are, client services businesses, where, you know, you are an agency who works with clients to work on their one thing. Um, you know, so they may be the ones who have the app or the physical product that you're working on. And then you go and work on, work with another client on another physical product or another, another web app or another website. Um, so we made, we made the trade to just kind of tackle one of our own products as opposed to continuing to work with clients on theirs. Yeah. And I think that's an important distinction for, for design education nowadays, because, um, we're not, you're not design, you you did not design a website. You built a product that took the form of a website, but because that was the the best thing, it, that was the right you know the right solution for the the problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is a there is a distinction, and I I don't think that we look um, in education at that particularly that big scope of we're produ- 
students are going to go into the industry now and they're going to be creating products for clients, um, not necessarily static brochure type stuff anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, you know, education's in a tough spot, especially as it results to uh, interaction, educate, or, uh, I'm sorry, mm-hmm. you know, the, you know, interaction and, and we can call it whatever on, you want. Yeah. <laughs> online web design, you know, interactive, whatever we want to call it. Um, everything changes so quickly and, you know, you as an educator have to be way ahead of things in terms of creating curriculum and, you know, and making sure that you are, that the student that you start creating today comes out the other end four years later. Um, you know, with a relevant skill set, and because things change every <laughs> every six months, in, in especially in web design and, and app design, interaction design, um, you know, trying to plan four years ahead is pretty much impossible. Um, you know, so I don't envy your position, yeah. but it doesn't necessarily mean it's not a problem. Yeah, no, it's um, it is it's difficult, but you know, this actually, I think in that same no, there was another pastry box article maybe it was actually the same one um you said learn to code this Mm -hmm. is coming some coming from someone who couldn't code his way out of wet paper bag and still can't yeah (laughs) why do you think that is important and but more specifically for designers right um learning to code gives you this common language with the people who are making the thing that you are building um, you know, a lot of people like to pull out the architect metaphor when they talk about designers learning to code. Um, I haven't heard that one yet. Okay. Well, it's, it's, it's kind of a common metaphor where it's like, you know, architects don't need to know how to build their own buildings. You know, they don't need to know how to hop into a crane and like move an I-beam into place, um, you know, when they're building their own buildings, but architects do learn structural engineering. And that's kind of, I think what I, that's more closely tied to what I mean when I say designers need to learn how to code. You know, not so much that you need to, um, you know, be able to pick up a, you know, a, a, an air tool and you know rivet some steel beams together. Um, but you do, you do know need to, you know, you do need to know how force is applied to, you know, to your, to your building. Um, you know, you know, you need to know how to build a building so that it doesn't fall down. You don't necessarily need to be the one who's putting the beams into place. Um, and I think that's, if that was confusing enough, um, no, no, I get it. You know, that, that's, I think what, I think that's where web design is, is headed. Um, you know, as the, as the industry matures, Mm -hmm. people are going to be headed for roles that are a lot more specialized than they've been in the past. Um, but everybody needs to be able to speak, speak their, you know, speak, speak the same language. And I think web design is still at a point in its development where designers are coming to the field from traditional backgrounds, print, Mm -hmm. things like that. And there's a lot about print design that just doesn't apply to web design and trying to hammer print design principles into place on the internet can lead to a lot of frustration, Um, both your own frustration and a developer's frustration and ultimately, you know, user's frustration in a lot of ways. Um, You know, so learning that common language of the internet um, even if you don't know how to make production level code, um, can really grease the skids, you know, from w- when you're working in a, when you're working in a team. So I have two questions and, and one, the first one, um, is how do you define code 
as is it HTML, CSS, JavaScript, whatever, PHP, Ruby, and mm-hmm. then other one. The follow up after you answer that one is, what are the things that print that don't you think transfer? Or you can answer whichever one you want first. Sure. Um, I mean, I'm probably the wrong person to answer this question, uh, at least the first part of the question. But I would say HTML, CSS, and maybe yeah. like some really basic JavaScript. Although, I mean, you know, being a full stack web developer nowadays is I mean, there's so many technologies and so many techniques and so many processes that that go into. I mean, version control um, yeah. over the last few years is something that that's popped up as um, as something that everybody quote needs to know. Or uh, CSS preprocessors are something that's you know quote everybody needs to know. That's part of everybody's process. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, you know, not to pull a you know back in the day when I was a kid kind of thing, but you know, I mean, I remember just like jumping straight into like Notepad and like building a website. Yep. But now That's how I did know, it. <laughs> right. It now it takes an hour and a half to get your environment set up before <laughs> you're ready to start actually coding anything. Yeah. Um <laughs> that's tough and it makes it really uh intimidating for for a student to like jump in and, and get started because they don't see they don't see results. Um, it's it's a lot more about protocol than it is about building. Um, at least you know before when you're when you're setting everything up. Yeah. Uh, but uh, you know, I'd, I would say HTML, CSS, maybe maybe a tiny bit of JavaScript at, at least at least now. Um, okay. And you know, once you get in a team, if you get into a team, you know your your coworkers can tell you what flavor of CSS preprocessor they use and what flavor of version control they use, and um, you know get you get you started down that road. Um, what was the other question? So uh, in print design, you said that right, some right, right, things right, right. just don't translate. So like, the ideal, you know, in in print design, everything you design, everything you make, whether, you know, you know the exact dimensions of the thing that you're going to be making, whether it's, uh, you know, a magazine ad or a poster or, you know, whatever it is, a billboard. Um, none of that matters in in web design, none of that is the truth. In, in web design, um, you're you're. I mean, especially now. I mean, you're the thing that you're building could be viewed on everything from a watch to like you know one of those crazy widescreen high def LG monitors. Um, you know, so you don't know how tall it's going to be, you don't know how wide it's going to be, you don't know what resolution it's going to be, you don't know the speed at which it's going to be viewed. You know, whether it's somebody on a on a really slow mobile connection or somebody on a really fast pipe in an office. Um, all of those things factor into web design and all of them are outside your control. Um, whereas print design is very, very much about control. You know, you can control every single aspect of the page, um, every single color, you know, how, how it's going to be printed, how it's going to be viewed. Uh, none of that, none of that applies in, in web design and it's getting more complicated by the day. I think, uh, Brad Frost, he's a a good friend, you know, Mm -hmm. really well-known web designer, he speaks everywhere uh, around the world, and he's, he's a good friend of ours here in Pittsburgh. Said uh, something like, uh, "Samsung, I'm, I, I will edit this for language, but uh, he said <laughs> Samsung craps out a differently sized black rectangle every thirty seconds." And you know, <laughs> that's the that's the environment we're designing for. Yeah, industrial design has really kind of flushed and gone swirling because all they do now is draw squares and rectangles. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like, thank, you can thank Johnny I for that. Yeah, he's good at drawing rectangles and squares. <laughs> uh, that I'm over. I'm I'm oversimplifying that. Right. That's kind of right. how I feel. It's all Apple is just squares and rectangles. Yeah. So it's it's mostly then the just like kind of reiterate that one. So it's like mostly you see just like 
it's it's just that that fixed width no longer exists that dimension no longer exists yeah but mm-hmm. it's it's more than it's more than that mm-hmm. um you know it's responsive design i think it's simplified down to size mm-hmm. you know width for the most i mean actually you know more more specifically just width you know devices are different widths and that's what responsive web design is but responsive web design factors in so many other things um and performance is something that really gets left behind as part yes. of the definition a lot and it's becoming increasingly part of the definition but um when you're doing print design you can you know you can add textures you can add fonts you can you know can add big photos things like that and all of those things pile up when you're talking about a website that's supposed to perform um, and again, you know, somebody could be on a really fast connection. Somebody could be on a really slow mobile connection. And if you have this like enormous website that is full of stuff, whatever that stuff is, whether it's fonts or textures or photos, um, that can really affect how a user interprets not only the website but the brand itself. You know, if if you if there's a brand you, you, you're you just being introduced to, for example, um, you know, let's say you have some like jeans company or whatever, um, and you want people to have, a, you know, a good first impression of the brand. Well, building a big, heavy website um, that doesn't load on their phone is a way to like negatively affect their business. Um, and we think about that all the time with, with Cotton Bureau. Um, you know, I think the next version of the site that we build, you know, not that our, our current site isn't performant, but I think performance is going to be a big priority for, for the next kind of iteration of, of what we build with Cotton Bureau. Yeah, I'm actually writing, I, I, I'm in the middle of writing an article on that idea of performance, but I'm not writing on performance because there's, I mean, Laura Hogan, um, mm-hmm. Katie Kovach, I mean, like somebody of uh, Kovac, I, I know I just butchered her name. Anyway, <laughs> um, there's so many people writing about performance, but I'm more interested in the fact that you mentioned comparing it to print budgets. Because mm-hmm. I think there's a real natural parallel there where, yes, because you mentioned like textures and photos. Well, you know, if they don't have the print budget, you start taking out photos, you start making it smaller, you do a shorter print run, you do you. And we all understand in the print industry, I mean, in print design, everybody understands this idea of like the print budget. So I think the performance budget is a parallel. So I'm working on a an article to kind of like say, you know, how do we when you're when you're thinking about a print budget think, you know, this also, you can think about it in the same way as you do with a performance budget. Exactly. I mean, you yeah. know, a lot of, a lot of people out there are writing about that stuff. Uh, Jusenia Perez Cruz, I know does a talk yes. about, about performance. Uh, I know uh, Dan Mall, you know, you spoke to on the yep. podcast, I think talks about performance budgets a lot as well. Yeah. Um, one, one, oh, and one other thing that I wanted to, and so also too, I think another thing that, um, that's missing and I want to get your take on, on that is, from print to to um, interactive or however you want to define it is motion. Mm-hmm. Um, motion is hierarchy. Motion is now a design element that can be used to call attention to something just like color can, hierarchy can, typography can. And it's something that's just not being taught or it's just not being, how do you, I mean, you've, you've hired some people when you've, for at full stop you've i'm sure you have at some point i mean how much skill do they have in that regard um in? i i actually wouldn't say that i have a ton of experience with that we're actually in the process of talking to somebody right now who might be who might be the next person uh, on the team who has some motion graphics experience but mm-hmm. um 
uh, I, I know that uh, you know Val Head on, on the podcast. She's mm-hmm. she's one of the one of the motion and JavaScript gurus in our in our space. So I'm sure you know she has a lot more to say about that. Um, you know, it's just a, it's just another tool in the toolkit that that everyone not everyone, but if you're if you're a designer, it's a good thing to think about. Um, it's a good thing to have, um, and it's going to be increasingly uh, important. It's it's been important in app design for for a couple of years now, yeah. um, and the the principles that apply to app design are starting to be applied to web design. Um, you know, there, there are ways to kind of port that experience from, from one to the other. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's something that wasn't important when, uh, I mean, you know, we had very, very basic CSS transitions. Um, and and those know. are what I'm talking about. Cause you had right. them on United pixel workers. The, those subtle animations, mm-hmm made me know, oh, I'm supposed to click on this. Oh, right. you want me to read this. And I thought you did a really good job of, so those are the kind of things that oh, I'm nice. talking about when it comes to motion. Yeah, I mean, you know, some of it is, you know, it's it's all, as, as you mentioned, it's all about applying, you know, the ideas of hierarchy, the ideas of calls to action, um, you know, what you want people to notice, uh, the order in which you want them to notice them, um, all those sorts of things, all those sorts of things apply. All right. Um, Oh, I just realized where we're at with time. Um, so one question I wanted to talk to you about before I, I let you go is um, the platform behind Cotton Bureau. Um, if I've followed history cl- correctly, mm-hmm. at some point it was a Shopify shop um, as the back end. Have, is it still a Shopify or has it? It been, isn't. It actually, it never, yeah. it never was. Okay. Pixel Workers was on Shopify. So but Big Cotton Cartel. Bureau. Right. Yeah, yeah, Pixel Workers was Big Cartel at first. Okay. And then Pixel Workers was Shopify, but Cotton Bureau has been custom from the ground up since since day one. Okay. Can you talk about the process of building that from like why did you identify <laughs> why did you identify we this time we need to start our own? Mm-hmm. Um how did and like how did you work as a team? I mean, cuz you you've got Matthew your lamp developer, um mm-hmm. You've got Nathan, who's the front end developer. So, like, how did you guys like sit down and, you know, like make this thing? <laughs> uh, well, um, you know, the early days of Pixel Workers, we didn't know what we had, um, and and the idea behind it took a while to take off. Um, so, we wanted to start with a relatively lightweight e-commerce thing. So, we picked Big Cartel, and it worked for us for for a long time. It works for a lot of a lot of people, and we you know we still to this day are, are friendly with a lot of people. At Big Cartel. At a certain point, the idea kind of outgrew Big Cartel. We needed more in the way, especially backend support kinds of things, reporting, um, flexibility in terms of products, things like that. Um, the way that we sold things on Pixel Workers is really weird. Um, the pre-order mm-hmm. model that we that we kind of discovered um, discovered sounds like we're like the Christopher Columbus of pre-orders. That's not what I meant. Um, you know, but they run with it, right? They're sort of like, they sort of fell into or identified as maybe a a better word. Um, and a lot of e-commerce platforms just like aren't built that way. E-commerce platforms for the most part are built to handle businesses that have inventory, which is like most of them. Mm -hmm. And that's not what we really were, especially at first. Um, so we had to make Shopify do contortions and backflips for a while in order to function for us on Pixel Workers. So we knew 
that when we identified Cotton Bureau as kind of the business of the future for us, that we were going to have to roll our own from the very beginning um, to make it work natively in the way that, you know, in a way that it would fu- that it would function for us. Um, I guess you could call it a design decision. Mm-hmm. Um, it is. But yeah, I, I guess it is. I guess it is. Um, but that's that's kind of how we made that decision. Uh, we we also didn't really want to be dependent on a third party. Yeah. Um, so many online businesses today, as as my 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 business partner Nathan says, are just kind of like towers of dependencies stacked mm-hmm. on top of each other. It's you know you have this service plugged into that service to that service to that service, and if one of them goes down, you know the entire chain can go down. And although we are a very 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 small team, um, it's nice to know that we can just like jump in and fix something whenever whenever something breaks. Um, you know we're never going to be processing our own payments. You know we use Stripe for that. Um, we're never going to be sending our own mass emails. You know, we use uh, Mandrel, for, I believe, for that. Um, at least for you know transactional mm-hmm. emails, kind of kind of things. And you know, there are a bunch of services that are plugged in to to Cotton Bureau that we'll probably never get rid of. But as much of it that can be ours as possible, um, I think. I think that's that's probably you know, and it's, you know, we're we're we have a we have a technical co-founder of the company. Um, you know, if it was mm-hmm. just me as a designer, or even me and, and Nathan as a you know as a front end developer, although he does <laughs> way more than front end development than uh, than I can describe here. But yeah. if it was just me and Nate, you know, we probably would have tried to like build it on top of an existing e commerce platform. But since we have Matt, you know, we can we can build it ourselves. Well, I, I think it's the reason I asked that is um, designers are going to need to. I mean, whether they're going solo. Um, so if they're going solo, if they're at a, at a small firm, at some point, they're going to have to steer a client to the right solution. Mm-hmm. And they need to be able to know that Shopify is the right solution or Magento is the right solution. Right. And they need to be able to, whether they don't have to design the, I mean, they'll have to design the front end, but they won't have to, you know hook it up to Magento. They won't have to deal with the inventory. They'll have somebody else do that, but they will need to be able to identify that as a, as a need, mm-hmm. as a, as a solution to the problem. And I'm, you know, that's, I'm just curious how I just was curious how you came about to understand that that was the solution to your problem. was <laughs> invent your own. And I had a hunch it was around the pre-order stuff. Yeah, it was, it was. And also, uh, as a company, we are, we are blessed with the presence of, uh, Nathan Peretic, who yeah. does more thorough research on options <laughs> and services than anyone I've ever met in my entire career. Um, so when we, when we were a web design shop and we had to identify a content management system for a client, we could count on Nate to do all of the legwork involved in deciding which one was the right one. Um, and he would yeah, more often than not make the right choice. This is kind of a weird question, but um, so for my classes, for my students, um, I keep the grades online in this own little um, grade book that I made because I couldn't find a tool that I liked. So I just made my own, Mm -hmm. but I never designed the back end. So when I log in, I mean, it's like to enter the grades, I'm looking at a straight HTML (laughs) Um, yeah, you should see no the back end. Of, you should see the back end of Cotton Bureau. That's what I wanted to know. It's like, did you guys actually finish it on the back end? Because so it depends what you mean by finish. Yeah. Uh, a lot of it has the same styles that we okay. use for the front end, okay. um, but it's not designed to nearly the same level of polish that the yeah. outside is. It has to be designed because that's how we 
you know, that's how we work the site. Yeah. Um, you know, when you're pulling the levers and pulleys on the back end, um, you know, you need something to use. Uh, but it's pretty, uh, what's the word I want to use here? Um, it could use a good sanding. We'll, yeah. we'll say that. It, it, it's definitely not polished where you could put it into, you know, open source it and no, and other people on the back could use it and look at it and go, okay, I, I know how to use this. Or, no, I don't think so. I mean, it's not yeah. like, you know, it's, it's not yeah. studs and bare drywall, but, uh, it's, it's definitely some, that's some, mine. <laughs> yeah. It's some cheap paint and linoleum. I don't even have the drywall up. I have just got the studs. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. We at least have that. <laughs> nice. All right. So, um, before I let you go, is there anything that you're working on that you would like to share or something that you want to promote? Um, it's tough to, it's, it's a, we're in, we're in a tough spot with that because we don't have, we're very bad at planning. Yeah. Um, I'm very bad at planning. Um, and when I'm like one third of a small, the small team that's making the website, um, unfortunately, I think I'm usually the roadblock to planning. Um, we're just trying to make this thing as good as we can make it, you know? Um, and that, that ultimately I think is what any good product team is, is doing. We're trying to make the experience as, as good as we can for designers, for customers. Um, and we have a, a, a to-do list a mile long, you know, of, of things we want to do or future products we want to roll out. Um, you know, I know that this, this, we're recording this podcast pretty early, uh, yeah. you know, before it comes out. Um, and that's tough for, for somebody like me, because I don't know that I can tell you what we're going to be doing next week, much less, uh, you know, a, a couple of months from now. But, um, you know, we have a couple long-term plans with Cotton Bureau as far as what we want to do. Um, I can tell you that it doesn't involve t-shirts forever. Um, yeah. there, there are some other products that we want to roll out and maybe by the time this is live, they'll, they'll be out there. Um, well, I mean, that's a good right there. I mean, it's, it's mm -hmm. nice that, you know, you've got a, you have a vision for Cotton Bureau, <laughs> right? It's not the status quo. So that's really cool. Yeah, I mean, you know, we rolled this thing out uh, back in June of 2013. Um, you know, in the, in the startup world, there's this, this we're not a startup, but in the startup world, there's this phrase, uh, minimally viable product. Yep. Uh, basically, you know, it's, it's do as little as you can. Yeah, mm -hmm. do as little as you can to get it live. And that's what we did. Um, and the website has really been an evolution since then. There have been very few big jumps. There have been very few complete redesigns, if any. It's been an evolution from day one to, to today. And I, like I said before, I think, you know, designers kind of get caught up in these like, let's let's nuke it and then build it up, you know, build it from the ground again. And it's, yes. it's taken a while for me to even get out. You know, I mean, I'm 36 years old. I've been doing this for a long time. And now I have a business that like I can't afford to nuke uh, and start from scratch. And I still sometimes I'm like, man, let's just totally redesign the site over the next month. And it's like, well, we can't really do that. Um so it's been it's been a nice it's been nice to kind of ease into this process yeah. of you know start with as little as you can get away with and then build it up and tweak it see what works and see what doesn't and you know change it and that's an experience that we just never got with client websites see i I'm glad that you mentioned that um and the reason is i designers educators, students, I think we all get caught up in that finished product. Mm -hmm. And it comes from our print. When you're done, when it's printed, it's done. Because it has and, to be perfect. Yeah. And with with web, I was so kind of like, I have to plan this website. I have to have it perfect. And it has to be perfect. No, it doesn't. It has mm -hmm. to be usable. Right. In a 
it has to be usable and that's it because then you can go after you get it usable then you can start adding features you can start making performance adjustments i mean but just getting that minimal viable product is that's really i think that's really hard because it's so ingrained in design to have it perfect yeah i mean as 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 nate says uh it's a lot easier to steer a ship when it's in the water than when it's in the dock yes (laughs) it's a good analogy yeah, I mean the best thing you know the best thing about websites is that they're never done, and the worst thing about websites is that they're never done. Yes, um, you know we've we've embraced I think the the latter of that. Yeah, and once you embrace it, I that's the there's no going back for you. Yeah, <laughs> but it's it's a good to embrace it. So before I let you go, is there like one final piece of advice you'd like to give design educators that we didn't cover in this talk? Because <sighs> um, you got a wealth of knowledge there. <laughs> well. I, I'm, I would like to give some advice to, I guess, students, but also sure. just some things that you can that you can pass on. Um, so we have um, we have a, a group of designers that we talk to uh, quite quite a lot. They're kind of a council of elders for us at Cotton Bureau. <laughs> um, you know, some big names, some some less less well known names, but everybody's talented. Everybody's been been a working designer for a long time. And one thing that we talk about a lot in that group is. I'll call it growing up in public. Mm-hmm. Um, back way back when, you know, designers used to, you know, you you learn to design by, you know, yeah, you go to class and things like that, but you also kind of you copy things or you you attempt things that you see out in the world, um, just to learn new techniques. You know, you see a designer who has a technique you like, and and you try to do it, and and now it's part of your arsenal too. Um, the difference is is you know maybe even as recently as 10 years ago or even five or seven years ago, a lot of those attempts happened in private. They happened in mm-hmm. class. I mean, the, the most public that, that they ever occurred was, was in, in class. Yeah. And if it was a poor attempt or an embarrassing attempt or a, you know, in some cases, you know, you, you saw something from a well-known designer that you liked and you, you basically kind of copied it. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of those things happened in private. And you can make your mistakes in private behind closed doors. And, you know, the worst that happens is you get shredded by 13 other people in a crit. Um, What happens now because of Twitter and because of Dribbble and because of Instagram is everybody (laughs) is taking those awkward steps in public now. And they're taking a lot of steps that they shouldn't take publicly. Mm -hmm. Um, And the the problem with that is not only, you know, is, is... you know, somebody can somebody can see one of those attempts and think like, "Ooh, this kid's like a ripoff artist," or "This kid isn't you know isn't any good," or whatever. And you can get labeled uh, negatively one way or another. Yeah. Very early on in your career, you know, even when you're a 19 year old kid and you don't know any better, um, and those sorts of things can can stick with you because a lot of that stuff is permanent. Um, you know, the other thing that can happen is you can start to get an audience based mm-hmm. on that stuff because the audience doesn't know any better. And, you know, you think once you build up 1,500 or 2,000 or 10,000 followers, uh, you know, somewhere that that can be validation for what you're doing. And a lot of that is <laughs> negative reinforcement masquerading as positive reinforcement. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, there's there's a that we've seen that. You know, as as designers who are maybe a little bit older, um, you know, although we are by no means old, um, we've seen a lot of that pop up in in graphic design. Is just these people who kind of built their own audience on social media outside of, I think, the healthy structure of design critique. Mm-hmm. 
um, and they they propagate poor technique or they propagate poor concept or in some cases like I said kind of out, outright plagiarism you know things that aren't original mm-hmm. um, to an audience that doesn't know better um, and and it, it can it can manifest itself in all kinds of negative ways you could be you know you could be taking work away from people that you know the kinds of people who whose style you're aping mm-hmm. um, you know or you could just be kind of putting yourself in a position where other designers think you don't know what you're talking about um, you know or you know, setting yourself up for a to, to not be hired things like that there's all kinds of ways that this can go sideways um and that's something that i wanted to talk about today with you yeah. both as a you know as a design educator and also just speaking directly to students is you know it's okay to try a new technique it's okay mm-hmm. to even copy somebody yeah. um as long as you're doing it on your own time um and you learn something from it and you can adapt it to to what you're doing and, and to yourself um because if you let that stuff get out, it can it can sink you in in, in a in, in some bad ways. Yeah, and I, I I do tell my students if they do that, you know, like give credit, mm-hmm. just write and say, hey, this is what I was trying to do. This is the person that I was looking at to try to replicate, and I said that that makes you actually kind of look proactive, like you're learning, as opposed to being a ripoff artist if you kind of own what you were doing. Yeah, yeah, and the thing is, I mean, you're not going to fool anybody. Yeah. You are not going to fool anybody. Um, the design industry is a lot more vigilant about that stuff. They're probably over vigilant yeah. about that stuff because there's a lot of things that aren't ripoffs that people call ripoffs. Um, you know, so you're you're not gonna you're not gonna sneak it by anybody if you try to put something out that looks like John Contino or Jessica Hish. <laughs> um, you know, because John Contino and Jessica Hish have a lot more friends than you do, and they all have <laughs> eyes. Yes, and they will, you know. They'll, they'll sound the alarm if they see something they don't like. Yes, they will. All right. Well, that's all we have time for today on Episode 9 of Design EDU Today. I want to thank today's guest, Jay Finelli of Cotton Bureau, for being so generous with his time. I want to thank the audience for listening, and I want to thank the Design EDU Today hosting sponsor, DigitalOcean, and CDN sponsor, Fastly, for making the hosting and distribution of these podcasts possible. Finally, I want to thank the AIGA and the AIGA Design Educators community for their generous support of my research that led to this podcast series. If you want to discover more about the Design EDU Today podcast and read the session notes and transcripts, visit us on the web at designedu.today. You can also follow us on Twitter at designedu today or subscribe to this podcast through the iTunes store. Thank you for listening to Design EDU Today.